1: Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Trustmark featuring my Trustmark online and mobile banking. Monitor accounts and information, transfer funds, create special alerts and reminders. Details at trustmark.com member FDIC.
0: Good morning. It's 8.30. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, thoughts on Mississippi's educational future from the U.S. Secretary of Education. Then shutting down a private prison in the state after years of controversy.
2: Half of those individuals will be released into society, and they will be detriments to society unless we find sincere programming resources to make sure that when people are paying the the time for their crimes that they are able to get out and be productive citizens.
0: Later, photography tips from the experts of everyday tech. And turtle-friendly shrimping. It's a thing. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi still lags behind the rest of the nation in reading and math scores despite improvements in recent years. The average school district in the state spends about $9,500 annually per student. The money comes from state, federal, and local sources and is less than the national average. U.S. Secretary of Education John King says Mississippi needs to put money into education if the state hopes to see improvement in academics. King speaks with MPB's Paul Boger after visiting visiting Indianola, where he visited a pilot program that is making a difference.
3: The Delta Health Alliance got a grant uh, back in 2010, a planning grant, with the goal of figuring out how to get the whole community mobilized on behalf of Better Outcomes for Kids. And then um, then in 2012, they got a twenty million dollar five five-year grant to build a promised neighborhood initiative, really with three goals. Uh, ensuring quality early learning. Uh, for all the kids in, in, in the community, uh, improving academic outcomes in their K-12 schools, and then working on parent and family engagement. And I had a chance to talk with educators, community leaders, parents, and kids, uh, and they're really seeing significant progress. Uh, more students arriving at kindergarten ready to learn, uh, better academic outcomes in terms of literacy in their elementary school, uh, improved high school graduation rates, And uh, an impressive effort to engage parents early, even as early as uh, prenatal counseling and counseling of new parents about uh, their child's health, uh, their child's nutrition, making sure that their kids have the support they need to reach important developmental milestones.
1: So how do you take a program like that and, and move it across an entire state like Mississippi? You know, Indianola is, is, is certainly a microcosm of what you see across the entire state, really.
3: Yeah, you know, I think there are some, some good lessons in Indianola. One is the tremendous value of, of investing in early learning. And, and we know this from research across the country. There's an 8-to-1, 9-to-1 return on every dollar invested in early learning. Um, we're excited that many states have increased their investment in early learning. Uh, the president's proposed to Congress an effort called Preschool for All that would help us get to universal access for low-income and middle-income families to high-quality preschool. Uh, so one thing that could be scaled statewide is access to quality preschool for 3- three- and 4-year-olds. Um, another lesson from Indiana that could be scaled statewide is uh, the counseling for new moms and expecting moms. Uh, there's tremendous evidence that good counseling early in uh, infants' development can make a big long-term difference in terms of academic and health outcomes. Just helping parents understand how to keep their kids safe, how to talk to them so that they're developing uh, good verbal ability early, um, how to make sure that they're getting uh, good nutrition early. Um, And that's something that could be done statewide through through the kinds of health care access that families get.
1: Again, states like Mississippi, you know, struggle with things like education uh, the state is widely considered i think by many to be the worst in education so what can you know what does the state need to do to, to move forward you know i know you mentioned early education and creating a more family learning environment you know but what are the, some things that you know that maybe the federal government can help the state with
3: Well, you know, that we just passed a new federal education law. The president signed it in December, the Every Student Succeeds Act. Uh, That gives states an opportunity uh, to use their federal education dollars in smarter ways uh, to support a quality, well-rounded education for all students, making sure that they're not just getting uh, English and math. Obviously, they need those and those are, those are critical, but they also need science and social studies and access to art and music. Um, And so there's an opportunity for states to broaden their definition of educational excellence. Um, But critically important is that states and local communities invest. And one of the things we worry about is that some states haven't been making the investment necessary, particularly in high-needs communities. And that that investment is critical to being able to attract teachers and retain those teachers. Uh, Those investments are critical to making sure kids have access to uh, STEM classes and computer science, the kinds of things, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and computer science, the kinds of things that will allow them to be competitive in a 21st century economy.
1: I think a lot of folks say that while funding is definitely helpful, it, it's not necessarily the the key to better education. I mean, would you would you agree with that?
3: Well, you know, look, at the end of the day, money isn't everything, uh, but you, you need a... Um, reasonable investment of dollars to make sure that you can uh, track quality teachers, you have quality physical plans, that you can have the technology uh, that's important for the 21st century classroom. Uh, But certainly, dollars aren't everything. You need a strong system of accountability around academic goals, and that was important uh, to the Every Student Succeeds Act, that it honored the civil rights legacy of the original Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 19. 65 and maintain a strong focus on, on the part of states and districts of ensuring that African American students, Latino students, low-income students, English learners, students with disabilities are um, getting a quality education. Um, you know you need systems to prepare teachers well and to provide good professional development. That's really been a priority from the, for the administration from the beginning. And the president's actually proposed something called best job in the world that would invest a billion dollars in improving preparation, professional development, career ladders for teachers in the highest needs community.
0: MPB's Paul Boger with U.S. Secretary of Education John King. Up next, shutting down a private prison in the state after years of controversy. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keep you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason
4: Klein, Director of Radio. I want to thank you for making this drive time one of our best ever. No, we did not reach our goal of 100000 but this drive has been nothing short of a success. You raised over $81,000 in one day. We know the listeners of MPB value what they hear and appreciate the programming. To all of the listeners of MPB, thank you.
0: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The Walnut Grove Correctional Facility is no more. The private prison in Leake County has shut its doors after years of controversy and legal troubles. Walnut Grove opened in 2001 as a youth correctional facility, housing inmates as young as 13. Allegations of abuse and poor treatment of inmates plagued the prison in recent years. The Southern Poverty Law Center, along with others, filed a lawsuit asking the state and the private company running the prison to address the allegations. Jody Owens is an attorney with the SPLC. He tells MPB's Desirée Fraser closing the prison is a huge step forward for the state.
2: I'm overjoyed. It's been a long fight to get to the point where we feel like that no one will continue to ever suffer again for what was known as one of America's worst prisons.
5: The prison uh was in the spotlight because there were several riots, pervasive gang violence and the U.S. District Court Judge Carlton Reeves said that uh, there was staff corruption and deliberate indifference in uh, some of his remarks and writings about the facility. The MDOC said that they closed it because of budget cuts. Do you think that it would have stayed open if uh, the state wasn't forced to make cuts?
2: I don't think so. I think that to the governor's credit, to the governor's credit, uh, we have invested in Mississippi over the last four and five years the major criminal justice reform opportunities that have allowed our prison population to be reduced, by maintain, and nevertheless maintain public safety, and I think it was uh, a realization that um, it didn't make sense to have as many prisons when we can downsize and, and save money for the state of Mississippi, but also of continue to avoid needless litigation. Walnut Grove currently is still under a consent decree. And while the state has appealed Judge Reese's findings, they are still obligated to have a federal monitor uh, to monitor the facility. They are still obligated to provide documents and records to the plaintiffs, to the Southern Private Law Center. And I think that all those things together led to this facility closing, and it was just the right thing to do at the right time.
5: This uh, facility was operated by a, a private company, a management training corporation, do you think that had anything to do with uh, the the problems that the prison was dealing with?
2: Well, you know, this facility has been managed by three private contractors. Originally, it was Cornell, Wackenhut, and then it was managed by the infamous Geo Corporation and now MTC. And what we saw, regardless of the provider, was a failure to be able to ensure the individuals were being rehabilitated and they were protected and they were safe. And that is particularly meaningful right now in today's time when we see a shift from the uh, perception that private companies with their profit incentives will house individuals safely. We see that time and time again failing. That experiment has not worked in Mississippi nor the rest of the country. And we're seeing the federal government, the Bureau of Prisons, getting away from that throughout the country, including in the immigrant detention facilities,
5: do you think that the state will move away from private operating of prisons?
2: It's certainly I hope. There's no way to get around if you want to make money in prisons to have as little staff as possible because it's your largest expense. And the only way you can do that is if you let gangs and corruption run the facility. And that's just a poor investment in people and our human capital can only continue to suffer if that system is allowed to continue and that human capital suffers, half of those individuals will be released into society, and they will be detriments to society unless we find sincere programming resources to make sure that when people are uh, paying the the time for their crimes, that they're able to get out and be productive citizens. So this is just not a today's problem. This is a problem for the next 20 and 30 years in Mississippi and and what we're doing to our, our citizens
5: there may be a feeling of some among uh, the taxpayers in Mississippi that folks who commit these kind of crimes really are reaping what they sowed.
2: Yeah, you know, there's certainly good people on, on both sides of the argument. But what we know is a few things. We know that Mississippi has been one of the leaders in the nation in incarceration. We know that Mississippians don't commit more crimes than any other citizens of any other state. So we, when we juxtapose those two things, do we think Mississippians are bad people? We do not. Do we think we're uh, worse off than other states? We do not. Well, we have to realize that we got this one wrong. Uh, the private prison system, the criminal justice system has failed uh, us as a state, and this is something we have to fix. We're, two years ago, we spent $360 million in corrections, and so much of that money could have been used for infrastructure and education, and all the things that make us a better and stronger state. And I would ask those proponents to think that it's it's simply about people doing crime and, and paying their time to really examine the system closely and ask yourself, do nonviolent offenders, particularly those with property crimes, deserve to spend as much time as violent offenders in prison? And the answer generally would be
0: no. MPB's Desiree Frazier with attorney Jody Owens of the Southern Poverty Law Center on closing the Walnut Grove Correctional Facility. Up next, photography tips from the experts of everyday tech. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
6: Mississippi Public Broadcasting has partnered with StoryCorps to share first-person accounts of the lives of Mississippians from all walks of life. StoryCorps' mission is to preserve and
5: share the stories of
6: American lives through personal interviews. You can hear these locally recorded interviews each Tuesday morning at 8.30 as part of Mississippi Edition on NPB Think Radio. These segments will also be available at mpbonline.org.
3: Americans have a big decision to make on November 8th.
4: A date which will live in infamy. Mr. Gorbachev... We will keep this promise
3: to the American people. Be informed. Listen to this station every day.
7: This is Everyday Tech on Mississippi Edition. I'm Sharita Brent here with Ashley Jeff Digital Media Director for MPB. And today we're going to talk about taking pictures. Good morning, Ashley.
6: Good morning, Sharita.
7: We have all these fancy phones now. Do we live in a time now where you still need a point and shoot camera or will the camera phone suffice? For most people, your camera phone will work just fine. What are some basic things you can do to make sure you're taking a good picture?
6: If you have a modern smartphone, something that came out in the last two years, chances are you've got a really great camera. They just, they pack so much power into them. There's a couple of things you want to look at to help you determine how good that camera is. Megapixels is a pretty good indicator. That just tells you how big a photo it takes. The best thing, though, is what kind of light sensor it has. Mm -hmm. And that's not always going to be readily apparent. But a little bit of research goes a long way in any phone that you want to get. Just do a little bit of research about what's in that camera, not just the megapixels, but how sensitive is the light sensor? Because the better the light sensor is, the more high quality photos you can take. And on my
7: phone, it's really cool. I have these timers so I can sit the phone on a table, go run away from it, and it'll go 10 seconds before it takes a picture, which I think is really cool. Now, something I'm always confused about is when or when not to use the flash.
6: It's a hard call. In almost any situation if you can take a photo without the flash and it and it turns out do. Because the flash has a tendency, especially on your phone, it has a very big tendency to blow the picture out because mm. it's not a particularly nuanced flash. It's just a flash. Now, some of the later phones, especially um if you're looking at the later Samsung Galaxies have pretty um sophisticated flashes that do a much better job of detecting and filling instead of just blasting light everywhere. But not all smartphones are made equal. So it's worth it to do a little bit of um, testing and playing out with yours to see how well the flash handles in different situations. But my general rule of thumb is, unless it is really dark, I try to take a picture without the flash. Because you can always add
7: a filter or go back and adjust the sharpness and the brightness and contrast and things like that.
6: You can. um, But if you blow it out and you give someone crazy face because they've accidentally flashed them all over the place, Mm -hmm.
7: then there's no recovery from that. So let's talk about the idea of zooming in and out on pictures. Sometimes the further you zoom in, the worse the picture quality gets. So what are your thoughts there? Uh, You know, if you're trying to zoom in on something, do you suggest just getting physically closer to it? Yes,
6: Especially if if you're using your phone, in almost all cases, any zooming that you're doing from your smartphone, it's a digital zoom, not an optical zoom. Optical zoom means that it's actually using the lenses in the camera to make the picture bigger and close in on it. You'd have to have like a lens to actually accomplish that though. Most smartphones don't do that. You can buy lenses for your smartphone, but just straight out of the box, they're not going to do that. So what you're doing is actually just optical zoom, which just means you're zooming in on the picture. So at that point, you might as well just go ahead and take the picture Mm -hmm. because it's going to be the same quality when you zoom it in and crop it. If you can get closer, get closer, because that's going to definitely get you a much better picture.
7: Except when it's a bear, because we know that people have been trying to take bear selfies and things and putting themselves in danger please don't put yourself in danger.
6: <laughs> Bears, very dangerous. If you want to go viral, that's awesome. But it's not going to mean anything to you if you have died in the process. Right.
7: One thing I also want to talk about was blurry photos. Sometimes I will focus my camera and I'm, I'm thinking it's focused and then I'll take the picture and everybody look look like blurs. So <laughs> how do you avoid taking a blurry picture?
6: It's definitely lighting plays a big difference, plays a big, big, important role in that because part of what can make a picture blurry is either it's out of focus, which on most of your smartphones, they autofocus and you can usually tap on the screen to kind of dictate where it will focus. But another thing to keep in mind, especially in low light situations, if someone is moving, your camera is probably not going to capture that movement correctly and it's going to end up blurry. Because again, you're dealing with a smartphone. You don't have the same quality on a smartphone as you would out of the latest Sony digital camera. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be the same kind of thing. So you do have to compensate for that by... No action shots. Action shots are hard. Maybe aim for taking a video instead. (laughs) Making sure that you have good lighting so you can get a good sharp photo is big important if you want to avoid a blur. And making sure that you tap on that screen to to focus it in on specifically what you want to focus on and then taking the picture is a good idea.
7: All right. Well, we will talk more about photography on Everyday Tech, the show this coming Wednesday. You can send us an email before or during the show to everydaytech at mpbonline.org. Then be sure to tune in this Wednesday morning at 10. For Ashley Jeffcoat, I'm Sharita Brent. This is Everyday Tech on Mississippi edition. Thanks for listening.
3: Americans have a big decision to make on November eighth—a
4: date which will live in in infamy. We will keep this promise
3: to the American people. Be informed. Listen to this station every day.
0: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Federal regulators are examining the way Gulf Coast shrimp are caught to determine whether more shrimp boats need to install devices to protect turtles. Often, baby sea turtles are lodged in shrimping nets during capture, which kills many of the creatures. Using a turtle excluding device, or TED, cuts down on the damage. Eric Bilski is with Oceana, a nonprofit advocacy group that sued over the issue last year. He tells MPB's Evelina Burnett, though the device may cost money, they also give shrimpers access to more markets for their catch.
4: Oceana agreed with the government to put the lawsuit on hold, the technical word is stay, to stay the lawsuit until the government can develop a new rule to require turtle-excluder devices in small shrimp trawls like skimmer trawls that don't, uh, currently use those devices, which are essentially escape hatches for sea turtles. So the government has until December 15th to issue a proposed rule, which is a proposal that the public can look at and comment. And then the agency has a certain longer period of time to come out with a final rule. And if the agency doesn't come out with a final rule in a timely way, uh, then we can restart the case. And if the agency, if the government does come out with a good rule, then hopefully we'll have taken a significant step forward to protect sea turtles and, in fact, probably to help the shrimp fishery. And uh, we can move on to uh, addressing the next problem.
0: Okay. And uh, so what what will this mean um, for shrimpers? And uh, will it mean something different for shrimpers who work in federal waters versus state waters? What
4: it's going to mean will depend on what the final outcome is. What we think the government should do is require all shrimp trawls that are not required to use the turtle excluder devices, the escape hatches, uh, to use them. And so that's going to affect shrimp trawls in state as well as federal waters because anybody who's out there affecting an endangered species is subject to the requirements to protect uh, endangered species. And it's going to mean that uh, those folks are going to have to modify their nets. Now, in return for them modifying their nets, they're going to get uh, benefits. One benefit is that right now there's a seafood watch list that consumers who are conscious about purchasing environmentally good sustainable products look at And the shrimp from gears that don't use turtle-excluder devices in the Gulf, right now that's on the red list. That's an avoid food. And there are stores that will not carry that food. So by going ahead and using the turtle-excluder devices, uh, those fishing enterprises, those, those fishermen are going to be able to get back into those markets and have those new customers again.
0: Coming up after, oh, excuse me, MPB's Evelina Burnett with Eric Bilski of Oceana on using turtle-excluding devices on shrimp boats in the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Coming up after Mississippi Edition, it's Deep South Dining. Now you're talking with Marshall Ramsey and Southern Remedy. And remember, if you want to catch the show outside the broadcast, just search for Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app and listen whenever you like. It's easy. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio.
1: Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Trustmark, featuring Trustmark Deposit Express, ATMs for business and personal banking. No deposit slips, no envelopes, no waiting. Most deposits made by 9 p.m. weekdays are credited that day. Details at Trustmark.com. Member FDIC.
3: It's Marketplace.